Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Twenty twenty one, and you're listening to Back Chat, the greatest wrap up of news here on FBI. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to elders, past, present, and future. I'm Shami Siva Subramanian, and I'm Sana Sheikh. Hope everyone's had a fantastic new year. First up, we're discussing the new Rona strains. To help make sense of this all, we're bringing in the experts. We'll be joined by Associate Professor Stuart Taval from the Kirby Institute to break this down for you. After that, we chat drugs. Like everything else, drug trafficking and illicit consumption in Australia has been hit hard by the pandemic. Backchat producer Charles Rushforth will have that story for us. And finally, we're talking the wildest story to end 2020 with, Hilaria Baldwin pretending to be Spanish. We'll chat with Priyanka Bromhead from We Are The Mainstream about blackfishing and its impact on people of colour and society at large. And as always, you can join the conversation and text us in on 0409 945 945 or tweet us at Backchat FB. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Look, it's hard enough to keep up with all the COVID news as is. And just when I thought I was starting to stay on top of it, the virus has mutated and there's a whole new strain to worry about. It's wild. There are currently new strains of COVID from the UK and South Africa. But there's only been a few cases of them here in Australia from people in quarantine. To help explain the impact of this new COVID strain and what this will mean for the vaccine, we're joined by Associate Professor Stuart Taval from the Kirby Institute. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for joining us. No worries. So there's been a lot of talk in the media about the UK COVID variation and a South African variation. What do we know about these new strains so far? Well, I guess the important thing is both of them are different, um, but compared to the other, I guess, variants that are out there, um, they've changed a little bit more than what we would expect. So the South African one has changed in a key part, um, the virus, what we call the spike glycoprotein, which is what the virus uses to get into cells. And the UK one has is, is varied, I would say, double on top of that. Um, so the UK one is quite special because it's it's mutated um, far in excess of what we would have expected. Now, in terms of um, what that's been doing and why people are concerned about in the UK and um, obviously in um, South Africa is that they're seeing this in their sequencing efforts. So in South Africa and also in the UK, they're actually tracking the virus. They're looking at its genetic makeup and what they've found with these two variants, although they're different, both of them uh, look to be spreading quite rapidly. So that might be a signature for increased transmissibility. So what are the impacts um, that this mutation um has and how contagious um, could it actually be? So both the South African variant and the UK variant, they have a change um, which people are uh, hypothesizing and trying to test um, increases what we call the fitness of the virus. So once the, when the virus has a small change, a lot of the times it might not mean anything. But in this case, in the South African strain and the UK strain, it has what we call this fitness, which means it, it has the ability to bind 
behind or stick to ourselves a lot better. And in that context, it can become um, more efficient in how it enters ourselves. And if it does that, what you often find in those cases is that you'll get more of it in your, you know, the tissue in your nose and in your mouth. And then, and then obviously, if it can bind to yourself better, it can be easily transmissible. So, uh, so I think in the context of looking at these, I think what they found is that there is the potential for them to stick to the cells and become um, easily to transmit, so we've got to be careful of these. But importantly, with these two strands, there's no evidence that um, it's increasing the death rate of people that have it. So although it's more tra- maybe more transmissible, um, it looks to be overall behaving the same as you know the, the other variants that we see. So, Stuart, after a year, we've finally gotten three vaccines that'll work against COVID. Will those vaccines still be effective against a new mutation? That's a really, really good question. Um, I think the primary concern with the UK uh, variant is there's quite a few changes. Um, And I guess the short answer is we just don't know. Um, The the real-time experiment that will tell us that, unfortunately, will be um, people that are getting vaccinated in the UK or the United States and then what we'll have is um, what we call kind of breakthrough infections in those people that are vaccinated. So that'll tell us that, you know, if, if, a, if a variant comes along um, and the vaccine doesn't work against it, you'll see people become infected. But I would say that um, as early days yet, we don't know. Um, and I'd say that, you know, touch with the vaccines will be broad enough. Um, and people are saying that they will be broad enough to, to lead to protection against these, these new ones that are coming into the mix. So with um, a lot of experts, they've been saying that COVID will never go away and that we may just need an annual COVID vaccine like we do with the flu. How likely do you think that this is? Uh, likely in terms of a seasonal vaccine? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think it's highly likely. I would say that um, look, we're looking at millions and millions of people infected worldwide. And so I'd say that this is unfortunately entrenched in our population and look it is changing just like influenza does and so i'd say now and then we're going to have situations where there you know a a variant might come up that the the previous vaccines might not work against and i think that the the good news is is that the companies like moderna and pfizer um, and even to some extent astrazeneca they have constructs or have the vaccines that can um, be fluid so they can change them to be seasonal so i think that's the good news and i'd say it's probably a high probability that we'll get to that well, it's nice to end that on a positive note. Thank you so much for your time, Stuart. No worries. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. That was Associate Professor Stuart Terval from the Kirby Institute explaining the COVID mutations. Coming up, we will unpack the Hilaria Baldwin saga with Priyanka Bromed from We Are The Mainstream. But next, our reporter Charles delves deep into the world of drug trafficking and how it's been hit hard by the pandemic. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI. Back chat. Text 0409-945-945. Shami, you know what Aussies love? Drugs. We eat that ish up. Nine million Aussies have tried drugs at some point in their lifetime and 3.4 million have taken drugs in the last 12 months. Getting the goods to us is an international affair. Our heroin comes from Afghanistan and our coke from South America. But like all great industries, international drug trafficking has been hit hard by the pandemic. With global trade, illicit or otherwise, being brought to a halt by COVID, how has the landscape of drug trafficking and consumption in Australia changed? 
Our reporter, Charles Rushforth, spoke to Professor Alison Ritter from the Drug Modelling Program, sorry, the Drug Policy Modelling Program at UNSW about this. My name's Alison Ritter. I'm the Director and Professor of the Drug Policy Modelling Program, which is at the University of New South Wales. So Australians are great consumers of illicit drugs. We have one of the highest rates of illicit drug consumption in the world. We have a very diverse range of drugs that are consumed by Australians. About half the population have used an illegal drug sometime in their life. Um, The vast majority of that is cannabis. So how are drugs trafficked into Australia? Well, it depends on the drug type. Um, So for amphetamines, that's crystal methamphetamine and so on, most of them come by sea cargo, that is through boats. Um, Compare that to something like ecstasy, um, most of that comes by air um, through, you know, aeroplane traffic. Um, Heroin comes predominantly via air and cocaine comes predominantly via sea cargo. The other important thing to say is drugs are both manufactured within Australia, that is domestic illicit drug manufacture, and imported from overseas. So there's always a balance between domestic production and trafficking of illicit drugs and the international supply of illicit drugs through our borders. The most common places where drugs arrive in Australia is Sydney and Melbourne, and then they need to be transported from Sydney or Melbourne through to other regions of Australia. So drugs are more expensive in central Australia because they have further to travel. Um, And the price of a drug is driven by the risk associated with police detecting someone with that drug. And so the further a drug has to travel, the higher the price because of the increased risk of police detection. And, you know, we have higher drug use in major cities than we do in rural and regional areas. Partly that's because of the nature of the population, but it's also because of the supply routes for illicit drugs. So do policing strategies work to, um, you know, reduce drug trafficking? Look, the answer is basically in the short term, yes, and in the long term, no. Drug trafficking is an activity that is hugely profitable. There are big incentives and these drug trafficking networks, as we've shown in our research, are highly adaptive and highly flexible. So when the police do X, the drug traffickers will do Y and they will learn how to get around it and they will adapt. So we studied a a drug trafficking syndicate for 15 years And what we saw is a lot of policing activity, you know, arrests, seizures, destruction of clandestine laboratories where they were manufacturing crystal meth. Um, And despite all of that policing activity, the amount of drugs that were available to be purchased remained the same. Um, So even where there were arrests of people, so the network decreased in size because police arrested a whole lot of people, But then within a year, the network had come back to being the same size that it was with different individuals because the incentives for drug trafficking are so high. What has been the impact of COVID-19 on drug trafficking in Australia? 
The impact's been as significant as, as it's been on all activities um, for Australia and Australians. When the lockdown first happened, we didn't see a big impact on particularly the injecting drugs, heroin, cocaine and amphetamines. But after about six weeks, we started to notice that people weren't um, coming in to pick up injecting equipment. Um, there were reports that the price was going up, which is always a signal that um, supply is tight, um, and that the and that the product was dropping in quality. So we think what happened was there'd been stockpiles in Australia for six to eight weeks that had sustained the illicit drug market from the stockpiles. And then about, you know, eight weeks, two months into lockdown, it was very hard to obtain those particular drugs. And it's continued to be very hard. And that is because we have closed our borders. We're not getting, you know, flights coming in. Um, sea cargo has been reduced. And there's much more surveillance of our borders because of COVID, which has resulted in surveillance um, in relation to drugs. One of the things that ha has happened though is there's been an uptick in cannabis use. So it looks like people are replacing um, some of the drugs that have generally been imported into Australia with alternatives like cannabis. And in addition, we think there's been an increase in domestic manufacture of drugs. Um, we don't know for sure that's anecdotal and we probably won't know for some time. But it, but it looks like, for example, the manufacture of um, crystal methamphetamine has increased domestically because they're just not being able to import, um, get through the borders with, with their usual supply routes. The risks are that the product is cut with more dangerous substances than um, happened previously. So there are adulterants and other things added to make up the bulk to, to create more bulk in order to make more money because this is all entirely about making money. Um, there's another risk, which is that people become used to a certain supply or a certain um, type of drug. It's particularly true of heroin. Um, and they learn, you know, if I have this much, I'm going to be okay. But if I tip myself over, I'm not going to be okay. I'm going to have an overdose. When the supply changes, people no longer have that lived experience of what's safe and what's not safe. So you see an increase in overdoses. And we know that this is occurring in Europe and in North America. Um, we don't yet know. There's been some anecdotal reports of increasing overdoses here in Australia. But that's completely expected. When the supply changes, um, more people experience really negative consequences from drug use. That was Professor Alison Ritter from the Drug Policy Modelling Program at UNSW about how drug trafficking has changed in Australia due to COVID. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Hey, Sana. Yeah? Have you ever gone on holiday to, say, Europe and then came back home and miraculously found yourself to be, um, I don't know, European? Yeah, I've been to Paris once and now I'm white and I speak French. Bonjour, baguette. 
Okay, that's not true, but that was the lie that Hilaria Baldwin had been living. The wife of actor Alec Baldwin has been accused of faking her Spanish background and accent for years, despite being born and raised by white parents in Boston. And it's actually not the first time we've seen a story like this. American activist Rachel Dolezal famously pretended to be black despite being born to white parents. So what harm does this cause for people of colour? And how is this becoming more and more common in our daily lives? To help make sense of it all, we're joined by Priyanka Bromhead, founder of We Are The Mainstream, a collective aimed at facilitating diversity and inclusivity in Australia. Hi, Priyanka. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, friends. Thanks for having me. So this isn't the first time we've heard a story like this. Um, Why do you think there's this uh, strange obsession with white people appearing to be people of colour? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting, you know, obsession, really. And I think it comes back to this idea about narratives and, you know, what and who our narratives are linked to. And um, I guess in Rachel Dolezal and Hilarious, instance it's like who do they want to be linked to or what do they want to be linked to do they want to be linked to the colonizer or the colonized you know the villain or the victim um and i think it's really important it's it's a great um learning opportunity for white people i guess um for them to acknowledge their roots and their ancestors that they don't need to steal our stories they don't need to steal our cultural tales um and i think for them it could be a really good way to kind of break intergenerational trauma um, because you know they've got intergenerational trauma as well we talk about it a lot as people of colour um, but in many ways we don't acknowledge the trauma that colonisers have um, and the violence that they inflicted on other people and then the trauma that that kind of sits within um, within their bodies and their experiences so yeah I think white people really need to, to acknowledge you know where do they come from who, who are their mobs who are their people and um, start acknowledging and embracing their, their colonial roots, um, the good and the bad, <laughs> and, um, yeah, just moving forward like that. So, Priyanka, we've seen versions of this story in daily life. Um, sorry, where have we seen versions of this story in daily life, and how is this becoming more common? Oh, daily life. Um, so interesting, like, Okay, so we see the fox eye trend, you know, that whole, what is it, eyeliner, making the eyes look more Asian, um, black fishing, um, so the use of, you know, fake tan to kind of make oneself more brown and look more black in many ways. Um, I think in many ways it is just another way of, you know, that colonial mentality and cultural imperialism taking what's not theirs. Um, and using it really to capitalize off and make money and, and commodify um, someone else's, you know, symbols or culture. Um, I think it's just, yeah, it comes back to the capitalist sort of colonial mindset that, you know, yes, it's not ours, but we are entitled and we can take it and we can make money off it and we can feel good about doing that in the process. So you've unpacked quite a bit already, but um, what harm do situations like this cause, particularly for people of colour? Yeah, I mean, it certainly 
turns our culture into a costume. And, you know, where do you get costumes from? You buy costumes, you wear them for one night or for a festival. And in the case of these two white women, you know, for a few years until you're found out. Um, and it's taking up space. It's these white people who are taking up space, making themselves spokespeople for those within the actual uh, oppressed community groups um, and not allowing us to tell our own stories. Um, I think for me as a woman, the hypersexualization of our cultures by turning them into costumes is what um, is most harmful because it then disempowers us and it de- de- dehumanizes us further. Um, and, you know, we're, we're no longer whole people, but those who continue to be colonized and have our cultures and our stories taken away from us. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Sana and Shami. We're speaking to the founder of We Are The Mainstream, Priyanka Bromhead, about white people pretending to be people of colour. So, Priyanka, there's also issues of colorism. Can you please explain what the term means and where it fits into the Hilaria Baldwin story? Yes, so colorism is discrimination that's based on the shade of brown a person's skin is, um, usually within one's own community. So, for example, I'm quite a dark-skinned South Asian woman, um, and it's important to acknowledge that colorism is... You know, it kind of started with caste, particularly in South Asia, but colonialism really concreted these ideas and made white supremacy and whiteness a global default and something to aspire to. So with, with um, who is it, Hilaria, I guess it's this idea that whiteness and white skin um, with a bit of an accent makes you palatable. Um, And she, you know, implicitly or explicitly is acknowledging, um, you know, the the benefits that come from fair-skinned, exotic cultures um, because of the proximity to whiteness that it brings solely on the lighter shade of her skin colour. And now this is not to say that, you know, fair-skinned people of colour don't experience oppression, um, but it's acknowledging that they hold privilege over dark-skinned So Priyanka, when does cultural appreciation become cultural appropriation? Uh, Yeah, this is a really good question. And I think um, Adele was a great example of appreciation versus appropriation. Um, You know, there was that controversy of her wearing Bantu knots um, and, you know, celebrating, um, I think it was Jamaican culture. And, you know, because of the way social media is and the world as it is, um, is this, um, you know, she, she, she popped a lot of heat. Um, and there were people in the U.S. context calling her out for appropriation. However, within um, the British context, um, they were saying, actually, hold up. This is actually appreciation. She grew up around um, these people. She, there was a mutual exchange. And she is actually appreciating this culture because she was a part of it. Um, so I guess the difference is, you know, appreciation seeks to understand and exchanges, you know, cross-cultural um, bits and pieces, whereas appropriation really is about extraction. It's about what can I take from me? Um, and it's not often just 
you know, to celebrate it, but it's about commodifying it. And also, you know, there's that element of hypersexualization on top of that as well. So recently, Beyonce's clothing company, Ivy Park, posted a photo of two models blackfishing, which is where a non-black person pretends to be black. So when it comes to tanning or wearing braids, for example, how far do you think is too far? Yeah, it's really tricky because, you know, globalization and cultural imperialism has meant that we now, you know, those of us who wear cowboy hats, we wear them, you know, there's, you know, tops in mandarin collars, all that kind of thing. But I, I think the question is, you know, why do white people, in the case of Beyonce's clothing company, for example, why is there the need to cast other white folk in roles that should be for people of color? And people of color do this as well. You know, there's um, a film by Deepa Mehta called Funny Boy that recently came under a lot of fire casting singular actors in Tamil roles. Um, and myself as a writer, I asked myself, you know, who is telling the stories and why? And who is left out of the picture and why? Um, and I think some questions to ask when we go, when we do these sorts of behaviors is, you know, Am I using this symbol or this object or this culture that is not mine, A? Um, B, do I know the significance of, of this? Um, am I using this in an appropriate manner, in an appropriate context? And have I educated myself on the meaning of this you know, symbol or this object? And really it comes back to asking why. Why am I doing this? What is this about? Um, and, and why is this about me and, you know, the aesthetics that it brings me or is this about celebrating the culture? Priyanka, it's been a pleasure having you back on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That was Priyanka Bromhead, founder of We Are The Mainstream, breaking down the Hilaria Baldwin fiasco. And that's all the time we have on the show this week. A massive thank you to our guests, Stuart Terval and Priyanka Bromhead. This episode of Backchat was brought to you by our producers, Tanita Razagi, Nikki Ilyaguyeva, Chantal Alkuri, and Charles Rushford. Before we go, here's a song to kickstart the first weekend of the year. This is Peng Black Girls by Annie featuring Queen Georgia Smith. This is the vibe for 2021. Happy New Year! Bye! Bye!